0: that we can uh, utilize this uh, afterwards. Okay, I think we're rolling now. Um, uh, once again, I will stop periodically throughout the, the, uh, the time that we're together to um, to ask questions, uh, maybe a couple of times, and, and then once uh, also before we, we dismiss. But uh, I'm gonna start off by asking you if you've ever gone to look for something, and uh, you're so sure that it's gonna be there, only to be disappointed when you don't find it. I'm, I'm still fairly notorious for misplacing my my keys and my wallet, I also misplaced my phone around the house. But fortunately, I can use my watch uh, to, to to ping it, and it gives me a clue as to where it is. Uh, I know there's technology out there that can do the same thing for my wallet and keys, and I should probably look into that. But uh, it was my older son. It was my older son Jack. Um, he told me something uh, that he went looking for one time, and he was so sure that it would be there, only to be disappointed uh, to not find it. He was about oh. Uh, maybe five or six years old, and uh, he asked us for something specific for his birthday. He asked for a, a toy cash register. We got it for him and it functioned like a real cash register and it came with, uh, with pretend money and, money and even a, a pretend uh, credit card uh, reader, teaching him young, I suppose. Uh, he was so excited to get it. However, not unlike other toys that he's had through the years, he didn't play with it as much as we'd hoped. Uh, we we didn't think much about it at the time and eventually we probably gave it away to a friend with a with a small child but my son now he's 14 years old and you know it was just recently like maybe two weeks ago that he disclosed to us uh, that he remembers very well receiving that cash register as a gift and as a young boy of five six or seven years old whatever it was he was so disappointed with that gift why Because when he asked for that gift, he was so sure that when asking for that gift, when asking for a cash register for his birthday, that would also yield a cash register full of actual cash to go with it. You see, even as a young boy, he felt certain that he'd found a loophole in the system. I can't ask for a box of money for my birthday, but if I ask for a cash register, I get all the money inside of that cash register. Pretty clever, isn't it? Also pretty horrifying. The next time you hear the phrase, oh, he's just an innocent child, don't believe it. I am amazed at how quickly depravity settles in and makes itself a home in our kids, Uh, greed at its finest there. But again, it was only recently that he told us how he remembers opening the gift, opening the cash drawer and being so disappointed that there wasn't cash in there. And I asked him, I I don't remember you saying anything about that at the time. And he told me, no, no. I just pretended that I liked it, but I was really disappointed there wasn't real money in there. Can you believe that? Again, it's always so disappointing when we go to look for something that you're sure is there, but then find nothing. You might say the same thing about the character we're looking at in in our Men and Women of the Old Testament series today. Today we're considering the account of Esther, which is found, of course, in the book of Esther. And many of you know that uh, this already, but for those of you that don't know, it's in the book of Esther that when we uh, open up uh, the book of of Esther, we find uh, something there. It's not, actually, we don't find something. We don't find something there. Whenever you open up any book of the Bible, you expect to find God mentioned in there, but not here. God is not mentioned at all in the entire book of Esther. But it's not just God; it's really anything spiritual at all. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the temple. No mention of the angels. Nothing. Okay. So how can that be? How now? If if this is the study that we're in right now, where we're we're looking for the fingerprints of Christ in the in the Old Testament, how are we supposed to find Christ in a story whereby we don't even see the name of God or anything mentioned? Why why is this book even in the Bible? And are we just getting a bunch of useless detail here? Why is it here? And so. It's here that you have to realize right away before you get into the book that the omission of the name of God in this book wasn't an accident. It, it's not like the author of the book finished writing the account and suddenly reached the end and said, oh, well, shoot, <laughs> that's an oversight. How did I miss that? I forgot to mention God. No, it wasn't by accident. It was, it was intentional. It's a literary device. Uh, and what the author is, is trying to tell us here is, is the central message. What's the central message of the book? Uh, what's the central message of the book where we don't even find the name of God? Well, uh, I'm going to tell you what it is before we get into the meat of the text. What can you learn about God in a book that doesn't even speak of him? Quite simply this, that he's there. He's there even when you don't see him there. He's there, though he may not be in plain sight, he's there. He's in the details, and he's always at work, even when we don't think he is. Even more when you think he's absent or away, he's a God of his word and he is there. When he makes a covenant, he's true to his covenant and he, and he keeps his covenant. That, that's the message of this whole book. That's what will be communicated in, in this text that though he's not mentioned at all in it, he's there. And uh, as I'm getting used to this uh, this virtual this virtual format, I saw only after the fact last week that I missed a few questions that were submitted to me on, on the, the chat, and I'm gonna try and be mindful of not missing those, uh, those today. Um, but uh, one of the questions that was submitted last week when we were discussing Job was this, how do we apply Job's story to what's going on in the world right now? That's a great question. And, and I might answer it the same way that we're, we're talking about, uh, in the same way that we're talking about Esther today. We, we tend to look at our lives uh, a bit a bit myopically, uh, that is we, we we don't see long range. we only see and focus what's going on immediately in front of us, and that's what job's friends and his wife were doing they were They were interpreting job's circumstances and, and applying a, a meaning to them in in the moment, right Job, you must have done something wrong. repent, and, and this will will all go away. no. It wasn't because Job sinned that all this fell on him, right? All this fell on him because God was telling a story. He was telling us a story about Christ. He was telling us a story that that didn't make total sense in the moment and and would only make sense when it was held against the entirety of of redemptive history. You see? It seemed like God wasn't there in the moment, but he he was. He was hard at work in the moment. So how do we apply this to our lives today? It, it, it's it's hard to see God in the moment right now. It, it's hard to see God in a in a global pandemic, but He's there. He's doing something, even when it seems like He's not there. He's there. So let's see for ourselves. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles uh, to the book of Esther. And Esther is, is uh, before the book of Psalms. There's two books before the book of Psalms. So if you have trouble finding it, uh, you find the book of Psalms, which is right there uh, in the biggest book of your, your Bible, and back it up to That's where you'll, you'll find uh, uh, the story of Esther. And the story takes place around the period of exile, which, which again, feels a little familiar, all right? We're, we're all in exile right now, it feels like. We, we've been removed from our, our church home. God's people were removed from their homes in Jerusalem and Judah and, and were hauled off to Babylon. They'd lost their, their beloved promised land. And, and, and quite frankly, they began to wonder if God was still God. Otherwise, if, if he was still God, how could he allow such a thing to happen? Perhaps the, they began to wonder, perhaps the God of the Babylonians was stronger than Yahweh. And they began to wonder if, if God was absent. How, how can this be of, of, of God? How, all this is happening. How can this be of God? And again, it has a familiar tone to it right now as we, as we consider how can what we're going through right now, how can this be of God? Well, to make a long story short, uh, the Persians defeated the Babylonians, okay? So the Babylonians were the ones that, that took the, the people from, from Jerusalem and Judah, and they, they hauled them off to Babylon. And then the Persians came in and, and defeated the Babylonians, and, and the Babylonians, or excuse me, the Persians uh, told the, the people of God who were there in exile, you're free to go. Go back to your land and start rebuilding if you want. So some, yes, some of the Jews returned to Jerusalem and started rebuilding. However, there were others that remained behind in the land of exile. Not everyone could just, just pick up and, and go and start building. And as a, as a minority group who remained behind, the Jews were still viewed with suspicion and sometimes faced uh, threats to their existence from people in a position uh, to harm them. So, so great. Yeah, they were free from the Babylonians, but the Persians didn't exactly embrace them as a treasured minority. They said, get the heck out of here. You know, Go back to where you belong. You're of no value here. So, so that's what you need to know heading into the book of, of Esther. Jews are not exactly admired and looked at with admiration in this land uh, where the account is taking place. So let's start with the, the first nine verses of Esther. And uh, read along with me if you'd like. This is Esther, uh, chapter one, verse one. I'm gonna try uh, sharing my screen once again so that uh, uh, you all can uh, see that too. And that is right here. And share. Here we go. Minimize you guys here. Here we go. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and his splendor and pomp and of his greatness for many days, 180 days, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people of President Susa the Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of a garden in the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of uh, poor poor marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones, Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion for the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Aha Suerus. okay? Uh, Back over here now, switching my screen around. Okay, so uh, here's, here's the setting. This, this is a, a king who's also known as uh, King Xerxes, uh, which is sometimes easier to say than Ahasuerus. All right, so uh, King Xerxes throws a big party basically to show off what a big shot he is. And this party goes on for days. This is a party of opulence and, and lavishness and excess, as wild as your imagination can take you. And then seven days into the party, the king has had way too much to drink and he wants to show off to all his buddies how great and beautiful a queen uh, she had, or he has. So, so skip down to verse eleven. It says this, and he summons uh, once again, sharing the screen. This one here. I was telling my wife I need a producer to help me with this. Uh, to to bring this is verse eleven. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, that might seem harmless enough to you, okay? Has a beautiful queen. Uh, It's only slightly objectifying, right? Well, there's more going on here than meets the eye. It seems that he's asking the queen to come in wearing her crown. Now, uh, I realize some of you may have younger ears listening here, so I'll be gentle. He, she was to wear her crown and there were no other articles of clothing mentioned. I'll leave it at that. So how does Queen Vashti reply to this? Uh, Verse 12, here we go. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him the king becomes so enraged that he removes the queen from her position. And we're told in verse 19 that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So now the search for a queen is on. Okay. Now before we proceed any further, Here's something we need to observe right off the bat. This is something that we need to that uh, that we have to realize is repeated all throughout Scripture, the the flawed nature of its characters. If the if the Bible were merely a uh, a collection um, of, of of moral people to serve as examples for us to follow, we could stop the account right here. Think about it, Queen Vashti. What's not to admire about what she's done here? She stood up to the king because he was asking for something demeaning and more, right? She knew the risk that she was taking. What a brave woman, right? But notice the book of the Bible here is not called Vashti. The book is called Esther. Why is that? We have to keep going to find out because remember what we're doing here. We're looking, we're looking for the, the, the whispers and, and the fingerprints of Christ in the Old Testament. That's our objective here. So let's keep going. Vashti refuses to do what the king asked. Uh, She's a person of principle and her her principles cost her the crown and she's banished. So let's see how we meet Esther. It comes about like this. Uh, Chapter two, verses uh, one to four. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and the Susa, the citadel, under under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. So the search for the queen is on. The king's henchmen are sent out to the kingdom to find the most beautiful women in the land and they bring them back. It's believed that they would probably bring back hundreds of women, perhaps even as many as a thousand. And every woman they brought back didn't really have a choice in the matter. That's what it's suggesting in in, uh, in verse eight. They were brought in, each one of them, as if they were being prepared for a massive beauty pageant or something. And, and they all went and underwent uh, beauty treatments and, and training because they were each going to get to spend one night with the king. It's, it's quite the, the classy setup. Uh, and in that one night with the king, their entire future hinged, hinged on what would happen in there. Now, the likely outcome, if you're rounded up, is that you would either become a concubine or if he really liked you, if the king really liked you, you might become one of his wives and maybe even have a, a child with the king. And then that that's affords you certain rights and privileges too if you have a, an heir, okay? But if he really, really liked you, guess what? You become queen, not just, not just a wife, but the queen. So that's how the whole process works. And so how does Esther figure into all this? Well, Esther is a Jew. And if you'll remember what I mentioned at the start, the Jews weren't exactly a celebrated minority. And and what we're told in chapter two is that Esther was an orphan who was being raised by her uncle, whose name was Mordecai. And Esther was beautiful, exactly the kind of woman the king's goons would be looking for. And the king's chief goon in charge of all the women was a guy named Haggai. And he's the one who finds Esther. We're told in verse nine of chapter two, And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, so this is a little wrinkle of the story that's going to be important a bit later. Esther is a Jew, like I said, but, but, it doesn't let, uh, but she doesn't let anyone know she's a Jew. This, this probably could have changed everything had the king's henchman realized that she was a Jew. She might not have ever been put into the running, but, but, but here she is, a Jewish orphan who just so happens to find herself in the court of the most powerful person in the land. And how does she capture the attention of the king? By doing exactly what Haggai told her to do. Here's how you go about pleasing the king and making him happy. This is what you need to do. And so this is what it says in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She's running away with the competition here. She's doing exactly what she's told, and she's winning the favor of everyone, including the king. The king loves her. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won the grace and favor of his sight more than all the virgins. So that he sat, so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so just like that, the little orphan Jewish girl becomes the queen of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Now, this is, this is what, I, what I love about the Bible. If you, if you and I decided that uh, we were gonna make up a religion and we wanted to create a religious text that we were all to follow, we wouldn't do this. This is messy. This is, this is, uh, this is not anything we'd wanna teach our kids. I mean, sure, let's teach our kids about Vashti, right? She grew, she, she, she stood up to that monster, but Esther? she's kind of, you know, she's going along to get along and has probably had to engage in some pretty compromising behavior. Now, here's what I want to do for a second here. Get ready with your your virtual hand raising, because i want to open up the floor just a little bit, because I want to ask you this question. Why do you suppose the Bible does this? Why are we focusing on someone like Esther and not Vashti? Why are we focusing on the one that is just doing what the men in her life are telling her to do, okay? All right, so now I'm not gonna try and unmute everyone at once, but I'm gonna see if there's anyone with the virtual hand raised. Uh, Let's see, Why why would the Bible do this? Why would the Bible focus on someone like Esther and not someone like Vashti? Anyone have their hand up? Not yet. No brave souls that want to take a chance. Why why would we focus on someone like Esther and not Vashti? Okay, well, okay, time's up. (laughs) I'll tell you. What do we make of this? Uh, We're not going to get through the whole story today, okay? Uh, Like I I shared with you before. Um, This is just going to, we're going to set up the the story and we're going to save the rest for, for next week. Esther Sunday. That joke is funnier than a lot of you are acting, by the way. Um, We're only introducing the story, the characters and the conflict. We've only set the story up. And at least at this point, I, I wouldn't be comfortable telling my daughter if I had one, you know, you should try to be more like Esther. But by the end of the book, maybe we'll be saying something different. And if so, what does that tell us? Not only about Esther, but about most of the characters in the Bible that it's not the characters in and of themselves that are the heroes. The Bible shows us time and again, it's not the moral people that God seeks out and says, you know what, I could really use that one. I could accomplish some great things with that person. He's so moral or she's so upright, let's use them. No, the Bible doesn't say that at all. It's the flawed people, it's the broken people the ones that are empty, the sellouts, the, the, the ones who can't stand on their own. Those are the ones that he uses time and again. It's the marginalized, the weak, not the strong. God works with Esther. He changes Esther. He stays with her. He's patient with her. God grows her and molds her into his design. And, and we have to be encouraged by this, don't we? This means that no matter how badly we've screwed up, no matter how, how, how much we've messed up, no matter what egregious sins you've committed or I've committed, you can't say that God has written you off. That's the beauty of this, right? And it points us to something else, too. Remember, remember once again what we're trying to do here. We're trying to find the whispers of Christ in this account. Is there anything, anything at all that we've seen so far that we can make a comparison between Esther and Jesus? It's tough, isn't it? Esther is not who we'd expect to be used by God in such a way that, that one day she would get a book of the Bible named after her. She's an unlikely person, isn't she? Think about that. Unlike, that should ring a bell in your head. Unlikely person, unlikely hero, all right? When Jesus walked our earth, was he the Messiah that everyone expected? Not in the least. He, he wasn't who we'd expect. He was an unlikely person, what a great thing to consider on Palm Sunday. They waved palm branches and yelled, please save us. That's what Hosanna means. It literally means say, it's, a, it's an, a pleading, please save us. Not because he was humble, meek, and lowly, but because they thought he was a military savior. The Messiah of the world. The son of a carpenter who basically lived in poverty, no sword in hand. Are you sure we got the right guy? It's all very surprising, isn't it? It's why they went from waving palm branches at him to spitting on his face in less than a week's time. Okay, so let me give you an idea as to where the account is headed. And I do see one thing here I'm gonna check on. Because she is Jewish. It was a good guess. Because she is Jewish. That is important. There is something important. Uh, Kim uh, raised her hand, or it might have uh, uh, been her husband, but uh, Dean, but uh, points out, because she is Jewish. Yes, Jesus was Jewish. And there, there is, that is a clue to the story here. Because remember, w- remember what we're doing here in this, this account. Uh, we are noting right from the onset that God is not mentioned anywhere. Not, not throughout, not the temple, not, not angel, nothing, okay? But the fact that she's Jewish, that is important. And that's gonna, that's gonna play into what this story develops into. Remember, remember what we said. Even when we can't see him there, God is there. Okay. All right. So let me give you a, a, an idea as to where uh, this account is headed uh, from here and what we'll cover next week. You have to begin to realize, remember, though it appears that God is absent, he's really hard at work. Okay. And just like this week, how it just so happened that a young Jewish orphan, the most unlikely of people, ends up in a place of prominence, the most powerful court in the world. The young Jewish girl who holds, holds a place of, of influence and power. How'd that happen? We'll start to see a lot of these as we go through the text, it just so happened moments. And whenever we see those it just so happened moments, we have to stop and realize there's no such thing as a just so happened moment. There's a real and present force behind the just so happened moments. Okay, so just for a quick preview of next week, we see an important detail develop in the story and uh, it begins in verse 19 uh, of chapter 2. And uh, let's see if I can bring that back over here. Verse 19, chapter 2, says this. Now, when the virgins were gathered together uh, the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Bigthan and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And so this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Okay, and so this is what happens mordecai this is esther's uncle he's hanging around the king's gate as he usually did this was his way of checking on on esther and as he's there it just so happened that he overhears a plot to execute king ahasuerus and he passes the word along to esther and and esther tells the king hey my uncle mordecai heard that these two guys that that work for you are, are out to try and kill you and so they looked into it and they found it to be true and so the king had the two guys hanged so in the end what happened mordecai saved the king's life he heard something, he was at the right place at the right time, and he saves the king's life. Again, this is an important point in the story that we'll just have to remember for next week, but in the meantime, just so we don't forget what the book ultimately points us to, okay, that even when we think God is absent, he isn't. He's at work. His hand is moving. We find him in the details. You, you find God in the minutiae, and just because we can't see him at work doesn't mean he isn't working, and, and here's what we have to remember. This is how God still operates today we have to realize there are no it-just-so-happened moments for us either. He's there. He's present and he's at work. And As an example, as I've always uh, found this, uh, this point fascinating, um, how God operates today, um, you, can, you can almost ask any medical doctor uh, how many times they've been in a situation or in a room or on, on an airplane when someone calls out, is there a doctor in the house or is there a doctor on board the plane? And, and the first time that this was pointed out to me was by a friend uh, who, who, um, uh, whose father was a doctor. And, she, was tr- and she, wasn't try- she wasn't trying to make a point or anything, just, just commenting uh, on the fact that, that uh, what it was like growing up with a doctor. She commented, I-, I can't tell you how many times I was with my father and heard someone say, is there a doctor here who can help? And asked her to clarify, clarify, you mean literally you can't count how many times that happened? That you were out and about somewhere and it became apparent that a doctor was needed and your dad had to go and lend assistance? And she said, yes, more times than I can count. Can't tell you how many times. Now that blew me away. You know why? Because I began to recall all the times that I was with my father or even without my father, just how many times I've been in a place out and about somewhere and I've heard someone say, is there a doctor in the house? And what amazed me is that I don't think I've ever been somewhere and heard someone call that out. Maybe once, maybe twice that I can, can't even remember, but not so many times that I can't count. Is there a doctor in the house? I've never been on an airplane where the flight attendant asked for the assistance of a medical professional. Never, not once. Or again, maybe at most once that I just can't recall. No more than twice for sure. And isn't it strange that my father's friend, it just so happened, found himself to be in the right place at the right time to lend assistance on numerous occasions, more occasions than he could count, more occasions than she could count. Okay, never mind all the times that that happened when she wasn't around her father. How many more times did it happen then? There are no, it just so happens moments, okay? And this is what we'll see in Esther, that when it appears that God is absent, even when it seems that he's hidden, he's right there, there are no accidents, there's no plan B, it isn't just a neat coincidence that Mordecai was at the right place at the right time to overhear a plot to overthrow the king. If he doesn't overhear the plot to kill the king, he can't tell Esther about it. And if he doesn't tell Esther about it, then Esther can't warn the king. And if Esther doesn't warn the king, the king dies. And what if the king dies? Would you believe if the king dies, it means certain death for the Jews. And if the Jews are done away with, you and I might not be gathered here today. It's a good thing that Mordecai just so happened to be at the right place at the right time. He's there. He's always there, even when we don't see him. And so so what does that inform us about what we're going through now? Well, for one, we can say that none of this is happening by accident. There's something to be gained by going through all of this. Maybe we don't see the effect right away, Maybe there's, there's something we have to, to hold on to as we, as we wrestle uh, uh, through these uncertain times. And that something is this, Romans eight I'm gonna put this up here for you because this is something that you should keep in mind in any circumstance that you're in, not just the present, but in any circumstance. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not a few things, not most things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Commit that one to memory if you haven't already. We need to believe this, and we need to remember this now more than ever. Wouldn't you agree? This is where we'll pick up next week, and let's see if there are any thoughts or questions uh, to this point. Uh, one right here is there a practical takeaway uh, for our behavior? That's it. That's the practical takeaway that again, in all things, in all things, and this is what we're going to see in Esther as we, there's a, there's a big payoff. There's a bigger payoff in the book of Esther than you might realize. And I'm going to, I'm going to disclose that uh, next week. uh, What the big payoff is, because again, when you look to the book of Esther, it's, there's no mention of God there. Okay. But once you realize it's a small detail and you realize, Oh my word, God is a, a covenant-keeping God, and it's right here on the pages of the text, I missed it every time. That's what we're going to look at next week. And so that's the practical takeaway here. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of everything that we're going through, it's hard to find God in the midst of this. It's really hard. Why? We're, we're, we're seeing projections now where, where 100,000 people could die, maybe more, just from this country alone. Where is God in the midst of that? And again, it's so easy to look myopically at something and look at something only in the moment. But again, God is not bound by time or space in something else that maybe we're not seeing. All things work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. You know, that's our takeaway. Uh, and then uh, Luke, Luke says here, what a great time to look at the book of Esther. I don't think I've ever seen so clearly the connection of Esther and Christ. She didn't overthrow the earthly powers that be. She came and submitted herself to them at great risk and cost and saved God's people. Uh, Luke is uh, getting into some of the material we're going to get into next week, but that's absolutely true. Uh, What a a great comparison. Uh, Let's see if there's any other uh, hands that are up. Any other chats, final comments? Uh, Share them with me now. Raise your hand or make mention of the chat and I can unmute you and, uh, and have you share your comment. Anyone else? Okay, if not, then what we'll do is this. Uh, We will uh, dismiss for this week after I uh, close this in a word of prayer. And as always, just like I, as always, it's only the second week we're doing this. Uh, But, uh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, But um, I really appreciate the fact that you all uh, get up at nine o'clock to do this, uh, to do this live. And uh, once again, I, I think it serves as a great jumping, bra- uh, jumping ground to do this, to sort of uh, get your, your, your appetizer for the word so that you can jump right in to, to worship at 10 o'clock. And uh, I, I'm going to keep saying this as much as I can, that um, though we're not gathered, we are not held together by a building. We are not held together by city ordinances. We, the people of God, the body of Christ, are, are held together by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are the body of Christ. People are the body of Christ. And uh, though we are apart, when we all open up our computers right now or our mobile devices to go into worship, um, again, it's not ideal. It's not ideal. I wish we were together. But to know as you open up your computer that you're not alone in doing this, that there are people that you are in fellowship with, that you are in community with, who are stopping right now to do that very same thing that you're doing there's something life-giving about that. There's something that ministers to your soul about that, to know that you're, you are not alone in this and that you are part of the body of Christ and that the body of Christ is not dependent on anyone or anything and that it goes on. Even the rocks will cry out like we, we mentioned last week. So I hope you'll, you'll, uh, you'll proceed uh, to log off of this uh, Zoom meeting and on to uh, our time in, in worship together, okay? Uh, we'll see you next week, yes. Esther Sunday. We will be back next week at nine o'clock, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 finish the rest of this, and then all once again go together uh, to worship uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, virtually speaking. But we'll we'll be together. Okay. Great to see you all. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we I thank you for this privilege. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for what your word tells us. We thank you that your word testifies to the fact over and over and over and over again, you are there, you are present, you are in the details, and that nothing comes to pass without your sovereign uh, authority over that, with your sovereign decree. So, Father, uh, whatever we face, whether it has to do with um, coronavirus or whether it has to face, uh, to deal with, uh, with unemployment or with how am I going to pay the bills or where am I going to get my next meal or where am I going to get my next supplies or groceries, whatever that may be, Father. Allow us to take comfort in the fact that you are sovereign and you are Lord over it all. But Father, in the midst of that, help us to be the people of, of Christ. Help us to be the body of Christ that ministers to one another and meets one another's needs and, and allows us to be the hands and feet of Christ. Allow us to find those opportunities that, that uh, we, can, we can do that. Uh, So we thank you for this time, uh, this unique time that enables us to do that very thing. We pray all this in the name of Christ, and it's for his sake that we pray it. Amen. Love you all, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys again soon, virtually, and hopefully in person soon. We'll see you later.